Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Current Standards and Future Opportunities for ADCs in Advanced Metastatic Triple Negative Breast Cancer, is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Antibody drug conjugates have transformed the treatment of triple negative breast cancer. With one ADC approved for this indication and others in development, are you ready to change your treatment approach? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Bill Gratisher. Here with me today are Drs. Hope Rugo and Dr. Javier Cortez. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get started. Bill, to set the stage for this chapterized course, can you tell us what the NCCN guidelines say about triple negative metastatic breast cancer and the sequencing of ADCs or antibody drug conjugates? As the head of the NCCN breast committee, I know you're intricately involved in the both the guidelines and keeping them really the most up-to-date guidelines in the world. Thanks, Hope. And as you know, we're both very much involved in this effort to develop guidelines based on evidence. And the NCCN guidelines, if one examines them in the area of triple negative breast cancer, we still see that there is a fair bit of chemotherapy that is used. But now we see the emergence of other agents, including sazituzumab govotecan, as an option, particularly after patients have progressed having received prior chemotherapy. And there's also the possibility of using other agents in select situations, such as PARP inhibitors, should a patient have a BRCA mutation. Obviously, if patients have a pdl one positive metastatic breast cancer, we look to immunotherapy as an option, an area that you've done a lot of work in. And then, of course, in select patients, which will be a topic later, there may be evidence that even trastuzumab deruxtecan may have a role in select patients with HER2 low disease. So again, I think we have the development of many different agents that have emerged over just the last couple of years. Though chemotherapy remains foundational, we have new agents that give our patients hope. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I think that we thought for some period of time that we'd sort of reached the ceiling on chemotherapy after the approval of aribulin and then some data suggesting that aribulin was better than capecitabine for triple negative breast cancer in the second or greater line setting. And now, you know, we have these new antibody drug conjugates and immunotherapy as well as PARP inhibitors that have all happened since that initial publication of the EMBRACE study and then the subsequent data looking at aribulin versus capecitabine. So we've really sort of broken out that ceiling and I think are continuing to make advances with understanding where to use the ADCs, moving them earlier, doing newer ADCs, as well as using PARP inhibitors earlier to try and better understand their use. And then the immunotherapy field is huge. We have a relatively small percentage of patients who benefit now based on pdl one positivity, but there's still a lot of work going on trying to expand that number of patients by combinations and even reaching outside triple negative disease. In chapter two, we'll discuss using ADCs to treat triple negative breast cancer in more detail. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We're just talking about the NCCN guidelines for the use of ADCs in triple negative metastatic breast cancer. Now we're going to look at their use and treatment. Hope, can you start us off by discussing the use of sazituzumab govotecan in triple negative metastatic breast cancer? Absolutely. This is such an exciting area because it was our first approved non-standard sort of chemotherapy, but still chemotherapy to treat triple negative breast cancer. 
And also, we've been so excited about these new drugs and their ability to not just improve progression-free survival and response, but also overall survival. So sasetizumab govitecan is a first-in-class trope 2 directed antibody drug conjugate, meaning the antibody is directed to trope 2. There's a linker, which is plasma stable. It doesn't get digested in the circulation. And then a toxin, which is the active metabolite of irenotecan, a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. And these new generation of ADCs are quite intriguing. Some of them, the two approved agents now, have a high drug to antibody ratio or DAR of seven and a half in the case of sasetizumab govitecan to one, meaning there's a lot of toxins on each antibody. However, there are newer ADCs that are quite active and have lower drug to antibody ratios. So that's clearly not the end all for the activity of these drugs. So sasetizumab govitecan was first studied in an umbrella trial, essentially where a number of different cancers and subsets of breast cancer were treated with sasetizumab govitecan in the late line setting. And in 108 patients with refractory metastatic triple negative breast cancer who really had received a lot of prior therapy, a median of three lines of prior therapy for metastatic disease, a range of two to 10, which is, means some of them must have initially had hormone receptor positive disease, the response rate was about a third, 33%. And also the clinical benefit rate was very high and progression-free survival was quite remarkable in this patient population. We saw that the most common toxicity was neutropenia and to some degree diarrhea. So we took that into mind. The phase three confirmatory study was designed. So based on this being an unmet need, from this initial phase one, two study, sasetizumab had accelerated approval for pretreated metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And ascent led to the final approval. This trial randomized patients who had metastatic triple negative breast cancer and had received at least one prior chemotherapy for advanced disease, as long as they had received treatment in the early stage setting, those who had no prior treatment had to receive at least two prior therapies. Patients were randomized to receive sasetizumab, which is given on day one and day eight every three weeks, versus chemotherapy, a physician choice, and a total of 529 patients were randomized. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival. In patients who didn't have brain metastases, there was a small number of patients who had stable brain metastases who were included in the population, but we know that that portends a poor prognosis, so the primary endpoint excluded those patients, although they were included in the secondary endpoints. About half of the patients in this trial received aribulin, which I think is a very nice comparator given the data from the EMBRACE and other aribulin studies as their treatment of physician choice. And the median number of prior regimens, including early stage disease, was four, with 88% of the patients having visceral disease. As now we all know, progression-free and overall survival was significantly improved in patients who received sasetizumab versus those who received treatment of physician choice. And it was quite remarkable the median PFS was just 1.7 months for standard chemo and 5.6 months for sasetizumab, a hazard ratio of 0.39. So that's a better than 60% relative improvement. And then overall survival was also improved. And that data was just updated at ASCO this year, 2022, with an almost doubling in overall survival, 6.7 to 12.1 months, with a hazard ratio of 0.48, a 52% improvement in survival. So quite nice. 
I think there are several things we always want to look at when we see these remarkable results and know we're going to use agents in this setting, patients who are in the second line setting. And I think some of us even treat patients in the first line setting who've had very rapid recurrences. And that's safety and efficacy based on different characteristics that might increase risk. We saw data nicely presented by Kevin Kalinsky that the impact of sasotizumab was similar whether you were under the age of 65 or 65 or older. And then we saw similar toxicity to the original phase one, two trial with neutropenia and diarrhea being the most common toxicities. Neutropenia seems to be related to the amount of prior treatment and, of course, metabolism and can be managed, in my experience, with growth factors. You just have to pay attention to it and be aware of the risk. Grade three diarrhea occurs in somewhere around nine to 10% of patients. And in those patients, either dose reduction or antidiarrheal therapy, depending on the setting, works very well to manage the toxicity. The other toxicities I've found are very well managed. A fair number of patients have alopecia as well. And there are studies looking at scalp cooling to see whether or not we can prevent the alopecia from sasotizumab, which in my experience works reasonably well. So as we know and said by Hope before, I think that the data of sasotizumab-covitikan in triple negative breast cancer was so exciting that we were all waiting for the next generation of ADC in triple negative breast cancer. And we knew at San Antonio 2021, the great data by Datopotamab DXD, which is a new antibody conjugate also against a TROP2. And this data come from phase one study in different tumor types, including non-small saline cancer, many tumor types, triple negative breast cancer, and homoreceptor positive head to negative breast cancer. And in triple negative breast cancer, they treated about 44 patients heavily pretreated. The medium therapies in the metastatic setting was three. And it's interesting to highlight that a significant number of patients received three or more. And regarding adverse events, it's important to remark that no cases of drug-related ILD pneumonitis were reported. And the overall response rate was just amazing, 34%. So 15 out of 44 patients did experience response. And for those patients who did not receive previous treatment with a TOPO-1 inhibitor, obviously based on an ADC, the overall response rate was 52%. So very high activity, also with a topotamab deruxtican in the triple negative breast cancer, highlighting the role of anti-TROP2 antibody conjugates in TMDC. So I think the comments from Hope and Javier really highlight the fact that we're going to have in the near term probably several ADCs available for treating patients with triple negative breast cancer. One of the challenges, of course, is understanding how best to sequence these drugs and whether or not they'll have similar efficacy depending on the sequence that's used. And that's all the subject of ongoing research. I know in the subsequent discussion in Chapter 3, we'll be discussing adverse events because this plays into the decision about how we choose among the different agents that are available and it may make one more attractive than another, depending on the patient. In Chapter 3, we'll be discussing the management of adverse events associated with ADCs. Stay tuned. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Bill Gratisher, and here with me are Drs. Hope Rugo and Javier Cortez. We're discussing the use of ADCs in advanced metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Welcome back. After hearing about ADCs and development for triple negative metastatic breast cancer, we're turning now to the management of ADC-related adverse events. 
Hope, what are the common adverse events seen with ADCs and triple negative metastatic breast cancer? This is such a great question because, of course, it depends on the ADC. And one of the intriguing areas that's come up is that the toxicity seen with the new antibody drug conjugates, so these sort of second generation loosely called ADCs, seems to be not only related to the toxin, the drug to antibody ratio, or the antibody. There's some combination of the delivery with the antibody, the toxin itself, and the number of molecules, the toxins per antibody. And this is now poorly understood. So for sasotuzumab govotecan, what we see is neutropenia as by far the most common toxicity. This can be managed pretty well with growth factors. I talk to a lot of people about management of neutropenia on a regular basis. The drug, as you know, is given day one and day eight every three weeks. In the phase three study, to avoid significant issues with neutropenia, we required a neutrophil count of 1,500 to start each new cycle. But now that we're using it as standard clinical practice, I use a neutrophil count of 1,000 because that's what we use for all other drugs. But we are fairly heavy-handed about growth factors. We use filgrastum on day three after the day one, and then on day 11 or day 10 after day eight, depending on the patient. And then some people have used grastum or the long-acting filgrastum after day eight for prevention of the sort of delayed neutropenia, and then they don't give any growth factor after day one. That allows you to use the on-body device if you want to use it as well. And in my experience, both approaches work very well. Sometimes we end up giving two doses of filgrastum after each infusion. And then, of course, dose reduction can also be utilized. For the diarrhea, which is the next most common toxicity, the major issue is using antidiarrheal therapy and educating patients up front as early as possible. So this is just really critical. When we looked at the metabolism of the active metabolite, the SN38, we found that it didn't matter whether you were a poor metabolizer in terms of diarrhea, just neutropenia, which was kind of unexpected. So for the diarrhea, what I've generally done is I educate patients, have them call in if they have more than minimal grade two diarrhea, have them use antidiarrheals. And then if they really have a lot of diarrhea, we dose reduce. So grade three diarrhea in general for me is a trigger to dose reduce because it means that those patients just are seeing a lot of drug and are unusually sensitive in a way that we can't measure well. Otherwise, we also educate patients about the risk of alopecia, and many of our patients use scalp cooling. There is a study going on at Dana-Farber looking at the efficacy of scalp cooling with ADCs, so that's interesting as well. And then lastly, I think nausea is an issue with many of the drugs we give. My experience with sasotizumab is that this is very easy to manage. It's sort of only minimally to moderately emetogenic. We give the nausea medication, some rescue drugs. My favorite rescue drug right at the moment is olanzapine, the antipsychotic. We give it very low doses, 2.5 milligrams at bedtime, but you can certainly go up to five and up to 10 milligrams. It's listed in the NCCN guidelines, and this is a very nice way for the first two to three days of preventing ongoing nausea. But that's not the only toxicities we see with antibody drug conjugates. So other antibody drug conjugates that use a topoisomerase inhibitor, deruxtecan, have been associated with very different toxicities. So more nausea, for example, delayed nausea, again, olanzapine works very well, no or minimal neutropenia or cytopenias. And then one of the uh, ADCs, the experimental trope 2 ADC that we just heard about in the last chapter, that one causes stomatitis, which may be able 
to be controlled with a steroid mouthwash that we use with Everolimus. So these are very different drugs. And some of these ADCs that use Dorexacan as a toxin are associated with interstitial lung disease. So that's also intriguing. We don't know why that is. It's not seen with sasetuzumab. And then lastly, there's even another experimental ADC against HER3 that causes thrombocytopenia. Same toxin, Dorexacan. So this is clearly a very interesting area with the experimental ADCs and I think also one that hopefully we'll learn more about and understand better as we explore even more ADCs to treat metastatic disease. Thanks, Hope. And I think what that discussion really illustrates is that oncologists, when they first encounter a new drug, are often guided by what the insert and how the trial was done. The reality is once physicians start using the drug, they understand better how to overcome the side effects that patients encounter. So whether it's dose reduction or the use of growth factors or antiemetics, or in the case of stomatitis, mouthwashes, these are all things that physicians, oncologists deal with on a day-to-day basis, sort of with standard chemotherapy and other targeted therapies. So I think we learn as we go and we develop a skill set that allows us to keep patients on a drug at the same time, minimizing hopefully the side effects that they experience. One other side effect that patients often experience with metastatic disease and often amplified by certain therapies is fatigue. And I think we have to acknowledge that that is part of patient's experience, and we have to do everything we can to minimize those kinds of side effects to maintain quality of life. In Chapter 4, we'll touch on regional considerations in treating triple negative metastatic breast cancer. Stay tuned. Welcome back. After discussing the management of ADC-related adverse events in triple negative metastatic breast cancer, we're going to close by taking a look at regional considerations. Javier, can you talk a bit about challenges to testing outside of the U.S.? So I think that, again, it's difficult to talk about challenges outside the United States because of the great heterogeneity across different countries. Not only the differences between the biomarkers that we can ask for, also the different techniques, the different availability of the different drugs. For example, in many countries, the new antiviral conjugate, Sasitumab govitican, is not approved in other ones. It is. So I think that there is a nightmare here. It's a very heterogeneous situation. But maybe I would like to highlight three key aspects. The first one relates to the biomarker. And it is important to highlight that in many countries, either PIK3CA mutations, the germline BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, and the PDL1 expression are widely available. And this could be important for the clinical practice. Basically, in the triple negative breast cancer field, I would highlight the PDL1 expression for the use of immunotherapy and the germline BRCA1 and or 2 mutations for the use of PARP inhibitors. The second is what about other biomarkers with potential interest in the clinic, such as, for example, PALV2. Again, a very heterogeneous situation in that aspect. And finally, I would like to highlight not only the testing challenges, not only the biomarker access and assessments, but also, as I said at the very beginning, the drug approvals. It's very important to highlight that in addition to the antibody drug conjugate, many other agents, the PAP inhibitors, also the immunotherapeutic approaches, and the new data we have seen, for example, with Artsumab deruxtican, in a small number of patients with triple negative breast cancer and HER2 low expression, this will be something to be considered if we would like to homogenize a little bit the treatment opportunity for the patients outside of the United States. And I'm not talking only about Europe. I'm talking, unfortunately, for many other countries as well. Well, this certainly has been a fascinating conversation. To summarize a great deal of data and discussion, 
I think we all are excited about the promise that ADCs have shown to date, as well as the drugs that are on the horizon that we may have access to. I think one of the interesting things that we have to acknowledge is that when we think about immunotherapy, we have to do testing to determine whether or not a patient is PDL1 positive in order to decide whether that given patient is eligible for therapy. In contrast with the ADCs to date, we don't need to know the level of target that's present because in the example of trope 2, we know that sazituzumab govotecan works whether you have high expression or low expression. So that doesn't seem to be the case. So as we go forward, we'll have to see if that holds true for all the other ADCs in development. As noted by Hope and Javier, there are predictable side effects that occur with these agents. We know how to manage these by our experience with other chemotherapy drugs that we often use, things such as neutropenia or diarrhea, stomatitis, et cetera, are all manageable with current strategies that we use for other things. Obviously, fatigue is something that is very important to patients, and we have to acknowledge that as a potential side effects for all of these drugs. So as we go forward, we hold the hope that we'll have other drugs that are available, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and thanking both Dr. Hope Rugo and Dr. Javier Cortez for joining me and for sharing all of their valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Bill, this has been a great discussion. Thanks so much for including me. Thank you very much again for having me today. It was a terrific, a great, 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 amazing discussion. Thanks, folks. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash innovations in oncology. Thank you for listening.